Part One, Chapter Seventeen, Part A of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Battle of Seven Pines, Part A. Toward the last of this month, May eighteen sixty two, a bolt like that hurled from Jupiter's hand burst so suddenly and unexpectedly that it startled, as with an electric shock, the people of both sections and filled the graveyards and hospitals with dead and dying. To give the reader an idea of the mighty events that had shaped themselves in this dangerous fashion, I will present a brief outline of the events that had happened up to this time. After the affair at Williamsburg, between McClellan's advance and Longstreet's rear guard, the Yankee army followed Johnston in a leisurely manner toward Richmond until it reached the Chickahominy River, when McClellan divided his legions, a step which nearly involved its destruction. The right wing swung around toward the north, striking the Chickahominy at New Bridge, directly in front of Richmond. The left, keeping to the south, reached the river at Bottom Bridge, thirteen miles below, and camped in that vicinity on May the 20th, 1862. The bulk of the rebels were at Mechanicsville, a little village about five miles from Richmond, and were easily driven back by a simple shelling. On the 21st, a Yankee division crossed the Chickahominy, occupied the high ground, and made two reconnaissances, one reaching below the Seven Pines to within four miles of Richmond. The rebels were nowhere found in force, and no traces of defensive works were discovered. The two corps of Keyes and Heinzelman were sent across the river to take up their position near Seven Pines. Johnston, in his retreat, had neglected to tear up the railroad from Richmond to Pamunkey. He had indeed partially destroyed the bridge by which it crossed the Chickahominy, but by the 26th of May the road was in operation to the river and the bridge was nearly reconstructed. There was no military reason why McClellan should not have crossed the Chickahominy and united his forces and fallen upon Richmond with his whole strength, but with his superb army of over 100,000 he greatly overrated the number opposed to him. The entire Confederate force only showed 54,000 men all told. He let the opportunity to take the rebel capital slip. On May 28th, the army of McClellan was thus posted. The corps of Heinzelman and Keyes were on the west side of the Chickahominy, massed checkerwise for the distance of six miles along Williamsburg Road. The stronger corps of Sumner, Franklin, and Porter, forming the right wing, were stretched some eighteen miles along the east bank of the river. The two wings formed an acute angle triangle of unequal sides, the apex being at bottom bridge. The distance from center to center of the wings was barely five miles, but between them there was the Chickahominy, across which there was then no practical passage except the bottom bridge. If the left wing of the northern army was assailed in force, the right wing could only come to its aid by a march of over twenty miles, which, in the condition of the roads in the springtime, could not be made with artillery, and certainly not under two days. For a hostile commander, with anything like an equal force, two courses were open. He might throw himself upon the weaker left, with hope of annihilating it before assistance could be obtained from the other wing, or he could assail the extremity of the right wing threatening its weakly guarded line of communication with West Point. General Johnston, at the end of May, tried the first and most obvious plan, and failed in his design by mere accident. General Lee, a month later, essayed the second plan and succeeded. 
On May 30th, General Johnston learned the military position of the enemy. He made the great mistake of supposing that one corps instead of two were across the river, and supposed that he had but 20,000 to deal with, whereas the actual number was something over 30,000 men. The attack was to be made with the four divisions of Hooger, Smith, Longstreet, and D. H. Hill, numbering about 50,000. During the afternoon and night a violent storm swept over that region. The channel of the Chickahominy was already full to the brim, and the stream, swollen by the rain, would have prevented any aid being sent from the right wing to the left. The attack was to be made by the four divisions simultaneously at daybreak on the 31st of May. The storm delayed the movement of the troops, but by eight o'clock Longstreet was in position waiting for Hooger to come up, but he did not make his appearance. Soon after noon Hill began his attack. Casey's division of Keyes's corps was three-quarters of a mile in advance of the Seven Pines, its pickets being thrown a third of a mile farther up toward the edge of a wood. The Confederates burst through the screen, forced back the pickets to the entrenchments, where a short stand was made, but Longstreet was now pressing upon the northern center and left, and Rhodes's Alabama brigade charged. After an hour and a half of stubborn resistance, the Seven Pines was abandoned with all Casey's division camp. The Yankees fell back to a belt of woods, where Heintzelman succeeded in rallying most of the men of the two divisions, who formed a firm front and poured in a fire so deadly that the assault was checked. Night was now coming on, and the Federals fell back a mile to their entrenched camp unmolested. Meanwhile, the battle was going on with desperate fury a mile away, and McClellan, on the opposite side, directed Sumner to cross over on the two pontoon bridges he had just constructed and take part in the fight. The river had begun to rise, and the bridges were almost impassable, many of the timbers being already floating. After several hours of hard work, Sedwick's division succeeded in crossing over the shaking bridge, and dragging his artillery by hand through the swamp, he arrived just in time to save the left wing from utter rout. He made a vigorous charge late in the evening, and arrested the southern advance. General Johnston, being wounded about this time, all offensive movements were summarily stopped. After Johnston was disabled, he was succeeded by General R. E. Lee. Hooger's failure to come up lost the day. Footnote. The official records state McClellan's loss as 800 killed, 3,627 wounded, 1,222 missing, in all 5,739 men. There was no official loss on the other side published. Longstreet reports the casualties in his command near 3,000. Smith says his division suffered 1,233. Hill probably lost 2,000 which would make Johnston's fully 6,000. On the 30th of May, early in the morning, Addison and myself were detailed to go to Richmond, with strict orders to return that night. About noon it commenced to rain, a regular pour, filling the streets and rendering the crossings nearly impassable. We waited patiently for some rift in the clouds until the lamps were lit, shining dimly through the blinding rain and then, seeing how useless was the hope of any cessation, we started upon our journey campward. But hardly had we gone several squares before the storm became so violent that we were obliged to seek the monumental hotel for shelter. There we waited until after ten o'clock. A large crowd of officers were sitting around the big table in the center of the room, criticizing and discussing the conduct of the war. 
as every man, woman, and child thought it their first special province in life to do. If babies could only have talked about that time, they would have deemed themselves fully up to the occasion. While each had his own pet idea on the subject, all agreed that the present reign would effectually put a stop to military operations for days to come, for it would flood the streams, render the roads impassable for artillery, wet the ammunition, and prevent the moving of trains. All this sounded just as pleasant to the poor fellows who cherished an antipathy to having their heads blown off by a shell as a reprieve to a gallows bird. So we were in a pleasant frame for listening, when an old officer, with a flowing white beard, came up to the party and gave his views upon the subject, views which impressed his listeners all the more, because they were recognized as the result of accurate information and solid judgment. The Chickahominy, he said, rises in the swampy uplands about twenty miles northwest of Richmond, and flows about fifty miles parallel to, and nearly midway between, the James and York. The operations of McClellan embrace that portion of the stream from Bottom Bridge on the south, where it crosses the Williamsburg Turnpike, to Malone Bridge, fifteen miles farther, at which point it is traversed by the Fredericksburg Railroad. Richmond lies nearly in the center, and about six miles distant from the stream. At this section the river flows through a wooded swamp a few hundred feet below the level of the surrounding country. In dry weather the stream is a mere rivulet, but a moderate shower fills the channel, which is about a dozen yards wide and some four feet deep, while a continuous rain floods the swamp and overflows the adjacent lowlands. These bottoms are intersected and seamed with deep ditches, and even when not overflowed, are so soft as to be impassable for cavalry and artillery. The stream could only be crossed on bridges, with here and there fords passable only in dry weather. "'Then we hardly need fear an immediate attack, think you, Colonel?' asked one of the group. "'Oh, no, it would be an impossibility at present,' replied the officer. "'For this spring of 1862 has been unusually rainy, and the channel is not only full to the brim, but the swamp and bottoms are all flooded. Any shower can do that now. Infantry might possibly pick their way through the swamp, but horses would sink to their girths and artillery trains to their axles.' "'Could not bridges be put up?' queried someone. "'Not readily,' was the answer, "'for it would be necessary to build them above the level of the highest floods "'and provide them with long approaches through the swamps. "'Hence we can easily understand that this narrow Chickahominy "'is a greater obstacle, with its bordering swamps and miry lowlands, "'than a broad river, which might be across which forces could be carried in boats "'or over which a pontoon bridge could be thrown in a few hours.' "'And so, gentlemen,' added the speaker, as he slowly lighted his pipe and was about to walk away, "'we may surely make our minds easy on that score, for a while at least.' We eagerly listened to every word, and discovering the lateness of the hour, now rose to go. The tempest was at its height, but further dalliance was impossible, so buttoning our overcoats tightly we set off for camp. It was as dark as pitch, but traveling along a broad turnpike, one could not well be lost. We, however, plunged in mire up to our knees, with a big lump of mud on each foot and a stream of water pouring from each hat-rim straight down the backbone beneath it. It was not a pleasant walk. We had known better, but after all, is there not a kind of enjoyment in beasting the elements? An indescribable exhilaration, which lingers in our natures as a faint trace of savage ancestry. 
The wild man, not the monkey. Perhaps so. At any rate, the suggestion can go for what it is worth. About midnight we reached camp, and by instinct, for we had no other guide, found our tents. Wrapping up in a blanket, we lay down on the muddy ground, with the last sweet thought that the deluge would put a stop to drills, parades, and battles, and permit us to sleep the next day in peace. But it seemed as if our eyes had scarcely closed in slumber before the camp was rudely awakened by the light of swinging lanterns and the voice of the sergeant crying out, Get up! Get up! Put on your accoutrements! Pack up your knapsacks and fall in right away! From without came the warning drum, beating the long roll. We had no light and groped about as best we could. But in five minutes we had packed up and were feeling for our places in the forming line. By this time the driving rain had sobered down into a gentle drizzle. Soon the ranks were established and dressed, and the ordnance sergeant, coming along, distributed by the light of his lantern sixty rounds of cartridges to each man, forty to go in his cartridge box, which was all that they could hold, and the remaining twenty to be placed in his haversack. This looked like business. Following in his footsteps came the commissary sergeant, putting in each soldier's haversack three days' rations. Yes, we were in for it now. That every soldier knew. Our work was all cut out, and there was nothing left for us to do but face the music. Thus, with the knowledge, came the thought into every soldier's mind. Will I be alive this time tomorrow night, or will I be lying stark and stiff, with my sightless eyes blindly staring toward heaven? If I should come out, will it be unhurt, or with a slight wound? enough to give me a furlough and send me away rejoicing? Or, dreadful thought, will the leaden missile shatter my bones, tear through my yielding flesh, take from me a limb and send me maimed through life, or lay me in a bed suffering, there slowly to linger unto death? It was an interesting problem which he was mentally computing, and it took all the man's philosophy to enable him to wait for the answer. And it was not altogether a selfish one, either. The deepest sting oft-times is in the thought that others suffer in his misfortune or his death, others whose happiness is dearer to him than his own. It is only by lying amid danger, being in battles again and again, passing through a score of skirmishes, scouting, a vedette in an unknown land when, quote, death rides in every passing breeze and lurks in every flower, unquote that the soldier becomes utterly fearless and holds his taking off in indifference, if not in disdain. We had not yet reached that point, and so when the brigade, in obedience to the order, swung itself to the right and struck the Williamsburg Road, there was no reckless sound of voices or laughter, but a solemn, thoughtful silence. The marching was awful. Several small streams that crossed the road, now swollen by the torrent into rushing creeks, we had to ford. Some of them were breast-high and we held our cartridge boxes and haversacks way above our heads to preserve them from the water. But we did not mind it, neither did we complain, for hot work was waiting for us that would soon dry the ringing garments or make us heedless of them. About five miles from Richmond the brigade came to a halt. It was now broad day, but a gentle drizzle now obscured everything in a mist. The men sat on both sides of the road, each exercising his inventive genius in improving a seat of a stone, fence-rail, or an old log, anything to keep out of the wet. After moving down another hundred yards or so, the regiment was again halted, and orders were given to get breakfast, by hook or crook. Some few fires were started, but it required infinite patience to kindle a flame, 
with everything streaming with dampness. However, by persistent blowing and careful nursing, enough smoke was encouraged to boil the coffee and fry the bacon. Then over our pipes we discussed the situation, for up to this time we had not heard a single gun. Devoutly we hoped it might be a false alarm, though reason told us what a vain hope this was. I have heard of soldiers whose bowels yearned for a fight, but such bowels were not inside my anatomy. In an hour or two the rolling of the drums brought the soldiers into line, and continuing our march we halted two miles farther on and lay at rest. It was now high noon by the town clock in our old home, if we could have heard it striking. The rain had ceased, the fog had lifted, and only the clouds still hung low their somber curtains, hiding the heavens clear blue and making the scene dark and dismal. What did this mean? we asked ourselves. Had some plan of the enemies miscarried so that they failed to attack? None dreamed that we were to storm the works of the enemy, believing the while our role was strictly on the defensive. But we were on the wrong track, it seemed. At last it came. A little after twelve o'clock a gun sounded on our left, followed directly after by a peal of artillery. Hardly had the roar died away when was heard the rattling of small arms. Now battery after battery joined in the chorus, as if the world and Satan had concluded to join in the battle and fight it out. Was ever greater noise made anywhere, not excepting pandemonium? What grand and awful discord, as musketry and cannons roar blent together! See, the smoke, dark purple, rising like mist from the ground and spreading upward, and those little puffs of white, which the bursting shells leave in the sky to dissolve slowly in the gray ether. We moved forward and bore to the right, evidently destined to be held in the reserve. At four o'clock the pounding was going on as heavily as ever. Still no sign of action on our part, so we began to hope that there were too many men on our side to need us, when just as this juncture an aide-de-camp came up in a wild gallop, his clothes spattered with mud from head to foot. He hardly stopped to utter some words to the commanding officer, ere he was off like a flash. "'Fall in, men!' cried the colonel. "'Forward by the left flank! March! Double quick!' And for a mile we went with a rush. As we approached the scene of action, the crash of musketry was appalling. Long streams of wounded made their appearance on their way to the rear, in every species of mutilation. Some borne on stretchers, others swung in blankets, from whose folds blood and gore dropped in horrible exudations, staining the ground and crimsoning the budding grass. Still others were carried in their comrades' arms. Many more were slightly wounded and could walk, their hands pressed to their wounds, or hobble slowly along with a musket for a crutch. But their faces bore a contented look, feeling sure that a leave of absence stood ready waiting for them and because they had escaped so well when matters might have gone so much against them. It was a sickening sight on the whole, and tried the nerves of the men to the utmost. As we approached more closely to the scene of conflict, with its many terrors increasing at every step, the shells bursting in our midst, we beheld a sight that proved there was but one step from the sublime to the ridiculous. And even in this field of horrors, with the curtain rolled up, for we were all hurrying to play our parts in the bloody drama. Such was the farce enacted before our eyes that the regiment burst into a peal of hearty, unrestrained laughter that must have sounded as much out of place as tones of merriment in the torture chamber of the Holy Inquisition. The object of our mirth was a soldier, slightly wounded in the arm, the skin scratched off, perhaps, 
but he had kind, sympathizing friends, who said unto him, Where thou goest, I will go, and that was out of reach of murderous shells. Two supported him tenderly, one on each side, and two more, equally kind and sympathizing, followed after, the one lovingly sustaining the wounded man's hat, and the other affectionately bearing his musket. The countenance of the sufferer was twisted into a look of supreme anguish, while the assiduity and devotion of the four comrades was something beautiful to behold. Sooth, they were ready to fight for the honor of helping him, and, if it must be said, for nothing else. Ah, it was a most touching sight, and to a man the regiment responded to the emotions of the hour. He who fights and runs away. Such was the philosophy of our heroes. But they broke and ran as the jibes and hearty laughter from the whole line reached them, relegating themselves to safe arcades. Later on in the war, all such poltroons were seized and placed in front of the advancing line. The brigade, by order, bore obliquely to the right, and then, without stopping to form, Kempner commanding the brigade, charged across the field, with a battery enfilading the line. Men dropped at every step we took, but nothing stopped the momentum, and we crossed the field at a run. After we had reached the vicinity of the woodpile, where stood a big barn and several outworks that had been thrown up by the enemy, and recently captured by our forces, we could see the camp of Casey's division, not a hundred yards from us. The shelling had now become terrific. We double-quicked it across the field in plain view of the foe, who had trained upon us several batteries located on the edge of the camp, and shell, shrapnel, round-shot, and grape screamed about and around us. Now was the time to form in a line. Instead, we kept on without changing formation. Not but the soldiers knew someone had blundered. In fours we advanced, or in other words, we pushed toward the enemy like a lance, instead of spreading out in a line. Company A of the 17th was in advance, the lance head of the column. As we approached the woodpile, the musketry joined the artillery, and to go into that fire-swept camp seemed like entering the jaws of hell itself. Quote, a looming bastion fringed with fire. Unquote. Why do we not form a line of battle, the rank and file cried, as the men began to drop? In column as we were, none could fire their muskets. What did it mean? Who was responsible for so lamentable an error? But the onward gate was kept up by the column. Forward, forward, cried the officers, wildly waving their swords above their heads. Don't stop, men. Charge right into the camp. And right into the camp we did charge, burst in the midst of it, with the rebel cheer ringing high above the uproar of the guns. As we dashed in between the woodpile and redoubts, we passed a rebel four-gun battery deserted, every single horse killed, and the living remnant of men forced to seek shelter elsewhere from the terrible concentrated fire that swept through the camp like an iron and leaden rain. All save one little boy, the powder monkey, as they called his genus, who cowered behind the wheel of one of the guns, with eyes protruding, hands clasped, teeth clenched, and face wearing a look of horrified fright, face so white, so startling in its terror, that it haunted me for days after. End of Part 1, Chapter 17, Part A